Happy New Year. Good morning, Chapel Hill. That is anemic. Good morning, Chapel Hill. It's a new year. You ought to be filled with life and light and volume. As Gunnar shared with you, um, I'm going to be, this is, January is always a crazy season of travel for me, and I'm, I was scheduled to fly out at 4.30 uh, to heading to London via Iceland, and, um, and I got my uh, boarding passes yesterday, got checked in, and I discovered that I was leaving at 2.30. You do the math. Uh, three hours check-in ahead of time. That means I'm not preaching next service. So last night, our wonderful tech team was scrambling because we have new video equipment that we're going to be using uh, ultimately to live stream our services so that people who are not here can still be able to worship with us. So, But it was supposed to be a dry run last night. Suddenly it turned into a very wet run, and uh, and they they videotaped it. So second service is in for a big surprise because I'm going to be up there on the big old screen and... Uh, That'll be fun, so we'll see what happens. But, but you get me in the flesh, so here we go. It's really good to be back with you uh, after a, a break from a magnificent Christmas season. I hope that it was a blessing uh, for you as it was for, um, for us. Uh, I, I want to offer a big thank you to Pastors Ellis and Larry for their messages over the last two weeks. I listened to those. I always listen to the messages, but man, they were good. And, uh, and it just reminds me of the blessing that we have of uh, such a, a deep preaching bench. It's pretty remarkable. Um, I had a pastor friend this last week who said to me, only half jokingly how angry he was at me that we are hogging all of the great talent on our pastoral staff. And uh, I actually understand why he feels that way, because I think we do have all of the great talent, and we are very blessed. I hope you know that, and I hope you appreciate that, and I'm sure you, you do. For the last few months, we've been asking the question, what would it mean if Chapel Hill was known more for what we are for than what we are against? In this culture of all of the nuns and the nons and the anti-church folks in our culture, and it's an increasingly large number, everyone pretty much knows what churches are against. But what if, the, what if they were surprised to discover all that we are for? And so starting last fall, we began to talk about that. We said we want to be for our city, right? What would it be like if this church was known as the church that really champions the community in which they live? And then we talked about what it would mean to be like for our neighbors. Jesus said, love your neighbors. And so we're learning what it means to, to really take that literally and to love those people that God has planted around us. When I look on the map of our community out there and see all of the stars that indicate the parties that you are hosting in your neighborhood, it tells me you are really learning how to be for your neighbors. Fifty-eight of you have already thrown Parties, which is pretty darn impressive. So we're learning what it means to be for our neighbors. So for our community, for our city, for our neighbor, we're going to launch this new year and this new decade, if you can believe it, by talking about something else that we are for. We are really for our kids. Chapel Hill is for our kids. And, and I want to ask the question over these coming weeks, what does it look like for any church to really be 100% for our kids? Now, if you have kids at home, I don't need to make the case for you because it's the priority and the passion of your life, right? But I want to make the case that even for grandparents and adopted grandparents and adopted aunties and uncles, all of us ought to care about this. All of us ought to have a passion for being for our kids, for, for, for loving this extended Chapel Hill family of ours. For all of the fall, we talked about something that Jesus called the greatest 
commandment, the greatest commandment. The, the disciples asked him, Lord, what is the greatest? Actually, a scribe, a scribe asked him that question. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall what? Love your neighbor as your... We have been attending. I'm so proud of you. Yes. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The greatest commandment. We've talked a lot about that. This morning, I want to talk about the greatest person. Who is the greatest person in the kingdom? Or to to bring it home, who might we think would be the greatest person in this church community? It's an odd question, I know. But if you'll follow along with me, you'll see why I get there. Who is the greatest person in this church? First, you'd have to start by defining what you mean by greatness. Do you mean spiritual maturity? Do you mean generosity? Do you mean prayerfulness? Do you you mean uh, influence or authority? If it was some of those things, maybe it would mean uh, one of our elders is the greatest person in this church, or one of our deacons, or maybe one of our great prayer warriors, or one of our wonderful worship leaders. Maybe even a pastor would make the cut, if that's what you're trying to define as greatness. Who is the greatest in our church community? And I, I ask this rather odd question, because it is the odd question that the disciples asked Jesus one day. It it is really an uncomfortable question, as a matter of fact. And we read it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, if you want to turn there and be ready to follow that through. But in that uh, verse 1 of chapter 18 of Matthew, the disciples say, Lord, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And they were not asking someday when we're in heaven sort of a thing. They was present tense. They say, right now, this very moment, Lord, we want you to make a commitment. Who is the greatest in this group? Who would be the one who would sit at the right hand of your throne? And unfortunately, this isn't the only time that the disciples asked a question like this. It occurs with uncomfortable frequency. Uh, They always seem to be, or often at least, seem to be jockeying for power, jockeying for position, jockeying to be Jesus' favorite, jockeying to be his chosen one. It almost listens, it's like you're listening in on a, a group of middle schoolers. I'm his favorite. No, I'm his favorite. Who's the favorite of Jesus? And so they decide in this moment not to just talk about it among themselves. They're really going to go for it. They're going to make him choose. They're going to make him pick. Jesus, we want you to say, who among us is the greatest in the kingdom of God? I can almost imagine the look on Jesus' face when uh, they asked that. But then this is what he did. He spotted a child in the crowd. He put this child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And when Mark writes about the same account, he gives us a little more detail. Mark in chapter 10, verse 13, he says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms 
and blessed them, laying his hands on them. This is the word of the Lord. This is Josie. Thank you for doing this. How are you doing up here? Good. Yeah, good. Glad you're doing good. We have no idea the name of the child that Jesus called out of the crowd to put in their midst to to do that. But you can bet that when that kid went to school the next day, he or she, we don't know whether it was a boy or girl, was bragging, I was the illustration for Jesus' sermon yesterday. And that would be something he would carry him for the rest of their life. But it might have been a little intimidating being surrounded as they were by a bunch of adults. It says right in the midst of them, are you intimidated? Are you uncomfortable? No, you're a good one to pick for this then. (laughs) But whether they were intimidated or not, Jesus in that moment elevated that little child. And, And he said, this child is the greatest. Greater than the adults that are gathered around. Greater than you parents that are looking on. Greater than you disciples who are so eager to get an answer from me on this one. Greater even than the rabbi who might have snuck in just to listen in to the competition. The, the, the word rabbi actually means my great one. My great one. It was an honorific that was offered by the disciples to a, a rabbi. But in that moment, Jesus says, the great ones aren't great. This is what is great. This little one. She is the great one in the kingdom of God. Would you thank Josie for helping me out? Good job. I want to be clear about something that Jesus was not saying. When Jesus elevated that child in that moment, he was not saying that the child is the greatest in the kingdom because of their innocence, because of their spiritual purity. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. As a matter of fact, King David in Psalm 51 says that I was brought forth in iniquity. And what he's saying there is that from the first breath following our birth, We are spiritual rebels. And that might kind of seem harsh to us. We look with such fondness about children. Uh, And and we think, particularly in this last week, when we we see little ones, babies that are being baptized, wrapped as they are in their grandmother's baptismal gown, and we think, oh, they're so sweet, so perfect, so precious. Yeah, they are. But let me just tell you something that most of you are already aware of. Every baby is utterly self-centered. Which is the definition of of sin, isn't it? How many of your little ones have ever said, you know, mom could really use another couple of hours of sleep? I think I'll just hold off a little bit so that she can get the rest that she rightly deserves. Or later on, how many of them say, oh, my little sister wants to play with my toy, so I will happily give it to her. Or... At the end of of, of dinner, say, you know, it doesn't matter that I'm not going to get dessert after dinner because I'm just glad my brother did. How how often did that happen to, to you in your parenting? It never happened. Never in the history of humanity has it happened. Maybe once, but that's it. Jesus is not exalting children because of their spiritual purity or innocence. So then why does he call them the greatest in the kingdom. And the, verse comes, the hint comes in verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in order to understand this teaching, to have it really hit home, you need to understand something about the culture of the time. In first century Palestine, children were no more than 
Adults in the making. Adults in waiting. That's all they were. They had no rights, no voice, no influence. Childhood 2,000 years ago was never romanticized. You know, some of us might have been raised in that era of children are to be seen and not heard. Any of you have ever kind of had that? Yeah, I bet more this service than the next service, I'm just saying. <laughs> but in, in that day, they weren't even to be seen. Kids were to be kept out of the way, kept out of sight, kept out of mind, so that the adults, and really the men, could go about their important adult work. And especially um, in the religious realm, children, like women, by the way, were kept away from the rabbi and away from the spiritual leaders who were doing the really important spiritual work. The idea, then, that Jesus would use a child as an illustration of spiritual greatness was unthinkable. And, by the way, unprecedented. There has not been found another example in ancient rabbinical teaching of lifting up a child in this fashion. Not anywhere. So it was not only unthinkable, it was revolutionary for Jesus to pose this sort of thing. Would it be revolutionary to say that today? I kind of doubt it. In fact, I doubt that most in our culture would blink. They would think, wouldn't think twice about it. Because our culture tends to idolize children. By the way, I think it's an unhealthy trend. And I'm going to address that in a, few, in a few weeks. But when Jesus placed the child right in the midst of them, he was drawing attention to the least admired, the least influential, the most hopeless and helpless, the most humble of persons. A child had no rights, no standing. They were utterly dependent. And of course, they knew that. Every child knew that. They actually know that now. Every child knows that they are small. Every child knows that they are dependent upon mom and dad's good graces to take care of them. They are helpless and they are humble. This last week, I told you it's a heavy travel season. I was back in Orlando for a pastor's conference that I actually am responsible for. And I uh, went out running one, uh, one morning around a nearby lake. There are a lot of homeless folks in that lake, around the lake, and I was praying for them, and I was trying to deal with my own sense of judgmentalism uh, as I was running along. And, uh, and I, as I was running, I approached a, a homeless guy who was coming along the path towards me. He was really a pretty disheveled guy, and frankly looked a, a little troubled. And as I got near to him, he looked right at me, and he said in a voice loud enough for everyone to hear, and I thought I was ugly. (laughs) Really? I was tempted to say, you are ugly, dude, actually. I did not. I was just laughing, but it was kind of a humiliating moment. And I thought I was ugly. It was a humbling moment. This teaching of Jesus was a humbling moment. He was saying, if you want to be spiritually great, you must be humble. And this is important for us to understand. Humility is not behaving as if you are small or dependent or needy. Get this, humility is recognizing 
that you are small and dependent and needy. There's a difference. It's understanding that when we stand before God, we are puny. We are small. We are utterly dependent upon Him. Like, like a small child is utterly dependent upon the grace of her parents, we are utterly dependent upon the grace of our Heavenly Father. This is the heartbeat of our Christian faith. And it flies in the face of American religion, our American cultural religion. Our American cultural religion says if we behave ourselves and do more good than bad, then we will earn God's favor and move our way up the pecking order spiritually. But the radical teaching of Jesus, and you can never hear this enough because we are still tainted by this American religiosity. The radical teaching of Jesus, which flies in the face of American religion, and by the way, flies in the face of every world religion, says that it is only when we recognize our smallness, our neediness, our dependence upon the Lord, only then can we become great in His kingdom. When we are small, not pretending to be small, not trying to be small. When we recognize that we are small, it is then that we can be great. Why are we four kids as a church? Well, for one reason, because we need them. If we listen to the words of Jesus, we need them. When we imitate their humble, small approach to God, they help us enter the kingdom of heaven. That is exactly what Jesus said. We need them. So we're four kids because we need them for our own spiritual welfare. We need them in order to enter the kingdom of God. But we are also four kids because they need us to help them enter the kingdom of God as well. They depend upon us to find their way to Jesus. I want to show you what I mean from the second passage that I read. Gospel of Mark, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 13. We are told that uh, and they, probably the parents, assumably, were, were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. Now, even though rabbis normally didn't have any truck with children, they had no time to mess with kids, somehow the parents sensed that Jesus was different. And they had watched Jesus as he touched people with tremendous effect. They had watched the power of Jesus touch on uh, the rotting skin of a leper. They had watched the, the sight-giving touch of Jesus on blind eyes. They had watched the, the, the mobility-empowering uh, touch of Jesus as he turned a layman into a runner. They had seen what happens when Jesus touches a human being, and they said, we want that for our kids. They wanted their kids. They wanted Jesus to touch and bless their children. It was a wonderful instinct. And it still is true today. Even parents who are totally irreligious, they instinctively know that getting their kids close to Jesus is good for them. Even if they never go to church on their own, they might drop off their children. Because they want their children to have a touch from Jesus in Sunday school. And by the way, kids are often the reason that parents return to Jesus too. I was talking to a man this last week. He said, our kids are the reason that got us here. They don't keep us here, but they are what got us here. And this reality is 
why it is essential that a church think carefully and invest strategically in its children. It's why we have recently invested a lot of money and effort in our new security system down on that end of the building. Twenty years ago, we wouldn't have even imagined needing to do such a thing. It is a terrible commentary on, on our culture and society, but we want to keep our kids safe, right? It is why we have invested significantly in our memorial chapel. I have, you'll, well, you won't be able to get there today because it's locked down. But someday, I hope you can go and check out our memorial chapel and see the wonderful renovations that we have done, the light and the sound and the video and all of that so that when the children come, they have an engaging experience with God. All of that is because we, it's why we've hired Paul Hargreaves to be our new children's ministry director to lead our wonderful staff so that when their parents bring their kids to Chapel Hill, For a touch from Jesus, they will get it. The disciples didn't get it, as always. They they were locked into that mindset that a rabbi didn't have time for such silliness. And so not only did they prevent the parents from doing what they wanted to do, they rebuked them for trying. I could almost hear their comments in my ear. What do you think you're doing pushing these children towards Rabbi Jesus? He doesn't have time for this silliness. He has way more important things to do than than putting his hands and blessing your your rugrats. Get them out of here. I'm sure that the disciples thought that they were protecting Jesus, perhaps even honoring Jesus by serving as his bodyguards, his security team. But did you see his response? We are told that he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of God. Indignant. That is the only time in Mark's gospel that that word is used to describe Jesus' emotions. And what it means, translated as, he was ticked. He was furious. You could almost see the withering, laser-like stare that he directed towards his disciples when he said, Don't you dare keep those children away from me. Don't you dare hinder them from coming to me. And of course, the minute he said that, the, the phalanx of security guards pull back, and the parents release those kids. And it's one of my most favorite images of Jesus as he kneels down in the dust and the kids come running towards him and mob him. Maybe they knocked the Lord over. Can you imagine that? Mocked him over and he's laughing and giggling and holding and tickling them. The closing line says that he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying hands on them. I want to be forever that kind of church, don't you? How many of you have heard of the 414 window? Anybody? A few of you. It's actually a very common understanding among Christian educators for children. And here is what it is. There are studies that suggest of the adults that are in church that they will look back and say that those who committed their life to Christ, 80% of them will have done so between the age of 4 and 14. And in fact, by the time you reach 18, after that, there's a precipitous drop-off on the number of people who give their lives to Christ. Put another way, if we don't let our children into the church and into the arms of Jesus before the age of 14, the odds are four out of five that they never will. Think about that. 
Now, parents, if these statistics are true, or even close to being true, how might that inform the spiritual decisions you make for your children? When I hear parents say, I'm, I'm going to let my child grow up and make their own spiritual decisions. You ever heard that? You might have said it. Can I just say, that makes me crazy! You would never let your, your kid decide whether they're going to eat well. Or whether they're going to dress warmly. Or whether they're going to sleep enough. Or whether they're going to get up and go to, to, to school. Or get up and go to the doctor for an appointment. You would never let that happen. You make those decisions for your kids. Because that's what it means to be a good parent. How in the world can we abdicate leading our kids to the most important decision they will ever make? The decision to follow Jesus. And honestly, I often hear that from parents who really don't know what they believe about Jesus. And so one of the most important steps you could take for your own spiritual parenting, if that is you, would, might be for you to come to Alpha and figure out what you really do believe. If this 414 window is true, how might that influence the way that you spend the weekends? Sports are wonderful and transformational and formative. But if you regularly choose sports over Sunday school, are you depriving your child of the influence that will shape them for eternity? And grandparents, and I'll bet I'm talking to more of you here, and adopted grandparents, may I just say this? If you have not churched kids who have kids, your grandchildren, how might your knowledge of the 414 window shape your efforts and your initiative to get them into Sunday school. One man in my life group said, if what you say about the 414 window is true, now I'm thinking as a grandparent, how do we go to our children and say, we want our grandchildren in church? I know you're not going to church, but we will get them there. He said, maybe we even need to be a little confrontational. The spiritual nurture of children ought to be among the top priorities of a church. Like Jesus, it ought to be our instinct to embrace our kids. And when we do, it means that we're going to embrace mess, noise, bedlam, change, disruption, and expense. And many Christians don't want to embrace that at all. They struggle with that, which is why so many churches have so few kids. I'll never forget the woman I approached in the early years of my ministry when we were building the gymnasium. She was a woman of means. I approached her and asked her for a gift to build the gymnasium. She responded, I don't want kids in my church. I like my church quiet. And my response was, well, if you want quiet, go to the cemetery. (laughs) Church is for the living. Not my most diplomatic response, but I stand by it. I recently spoke to a a group of older adults regarding all of the changes we've experienced over the last couple of years and what we're trying to do to make our church even more welcoming for kids and their families. Here's what I said to them, and I say it to you. I want you to put on your grandparent hearts. I want you to put on your grandparent hearts. You prayed for your kids to come to church and come to Jesus. You prayed for your grandchildren to come to church and come to Jesus. You cannot pray those things 
and then be unwilling to set aside any of your preferences for the sake of the child that you say you so desperately want to have sitting in the pew next to you. When worship styles or musical choices or clean buildings or tradition or quiet become a higher priority to us than reaching our kids for Jesus, church has become idolatrous. And I thank God that that's not who we are at Chapel Hill. I hope you believe that too. I thank God that it's not who we are. It's never who we have been. I am proud of your passion and your commitment and your generosity in your support of kids. They need us in order to bring them to Jesus. And we need them in order to be brought to our knees in humility. And this will forever mean having to put up with the holy bedlam that comes when we obey Jesus' calls to let the little children come. You, I'm sure, have heard the saying, children are the church of tomorrow. You heard that? Do you know what I think about that saying? I hate that saying. I hate that saying. Children are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of right now. They are just as surely the church of right now as all of us adults. So may God continue to bless our ministry to kid and kids and may he flood this place with noisy, messy, disruptive little people who are eager for a touch from Jesus. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. I know they mean it, Lord, when they say amen. So listen to our amens and receive that as the the promise of our hearts to love our kids and to reach out to other kids, to make room for them, to set aside some of our preferences, some of the things that we're more comfortable with at times, even to put up with stuff that we don't like very much because we are willing to do whatever it takes to bring those kids in for a touch of Jesus. God, I, I thank you that this is the church that I serve. And as far as I am concerned, has always been that kind of church. But this is a good reminder to us of what the price is, the cost is, for this most critical of mission fields. So may Chapel Hill be the place where children are welcome to come and receive a touch from Jesus. For we pray it through Christ our Lord and all of God's kid-loving people said, Amen. Amen.